I was trying to speak loudly anyhow. Um, it was a gift that kept on giving, and she gave herself. And really, isn't that what God did at Christmas time for us? He gave us himself in the person of Jesus Christ, and it was and is a gift that keeps on giving. We're studying the book of Ephesians, and the first chapter talks about three other gifts that come with faith in Jesus Christ, and they are gifts that keep on giving. Listen to the Word of God as we find it in Ephesians, the first chapter, verses 15 to 23. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord, our prayer this morning is simple. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. I think the big idea in this passage is this, that if you have received the gift of faith in Jesus Christ, God also wants to give you the gifts of wisdom, hope, and power. Let's start with wisdom. What is biblical wisdom? The book of Proverbs that Jay read is the key wisdom literature of the Old Testament, and I believe Proverbs would define wisdom this way, that it is knowledge that is skillfully applied to life. There's an old joke that uh, knowledge is recognizing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not putting it in a fruit salad. I believe that wisdom is something God wants each one of us to experience each and every day. But there are special times. The book of James is the book of wisdom literature in the New Testament. James, the brother of Jesus, writes to us that God promises wisdom in a special way for certain circumstances. Listen to 
the first chapter of James, verses 2 to 5. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. What James is saying there is that God's wisdom is especially important in those times where we are facing trials, difficult moments in our lives. Now, I don't know what may be your trial today, but I do know because I know people that many of you are experiencing a trial, a difficult time in your life. And God is saying to you and me that if we ask, he says later, in faith believing, God will reveal to us through his wisdom what is going on when we're living through that trial. One of the biggest trials of my life happened when I was 25 years old. I was called to be the associate pastor for youth at First Presbyterian Church of Bethlehem. That's Bethlehem of Pennsylvania, not of Judea. It was a 2,500-member church and an exciting possibility because I was going to be working with one of my best friends. The senior pastor was Keith Brown, who was the best youth worker I'd ever worked with. And I knew I could learn from Keith, and he would mentor me, and we would have an awesome time together. Well, we were in Pittsburgh. Our twins had just been born, and we were getting ready to move to Bethlehem. And the day before we were going to move, I went running at Riverside Park. If you're familiar with Pittsburgh, it's all hills. And as I'd run up the hills at Riverside, I was fine. But coming down, each time my left foot would hit the, the ground, I'd feel a twinge. I thought, you know, a year before that, I'd had a water skiing accident and pulled a muscle. Uh, it still hadn't healed. A little frustrating. The next morning, however, I woke up and I could barely move. I was in excruciating pain. I said to Ann, we're going to have to wait. We waited for three days before we drove across the state. And when we got there, Keith set me up with uh, an orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Ross Orr. He had me lay down, he lifted my left leg up, and I passed, passed out. I fainted. I had two herniated discs. I had to have major back surgery. And back in those days, it wasn't days, it was weeks of recovery. I'm trying to meet these kids in the youth group, and I'm laying flat on my back at home. I was almost clinically depressed. Lord, why did you bring me here and not enable me, allow me to meet these kids? I hadn't even met the kids in my youth group. Well, at the end of the summer, I was finally cleared to be able to go with about 30 high school kids to a week-long conference at the camp where I had worked for the past eight years. 
I loved this conference, and it was just an orgy of athletics for me. Um, Ann and I were the reigning tennis doubles champs. Uh, from 1.30 to 5.30 every afternoon, I would play basketball, volleyball, touch football, softball. My philosophy of ministry was, in order to reach high school guys, I had to play sports with them, show them I was athletic, etc. Well, my doctor said, all I want you to do during that week is sit by the pool and dangle your feet in the water. If you get hot, you can, you know, cool off, but no, no, don't even swim. I thought, this is going to be the most boring week of my life. I'm sitting by the pool and everybody else is playing sports and having fun. Well, the first afternoon, I'm sitting there dangling, and this huge six-foot-eight guy, Paul Thwait, comes and sits next to me. He's having girl problems, wanted to talk about it. We talked, we prayed. Uh, we became the best of friends. Interesting, I did his wedding eight years later to a girl that he met at that conference. All week, one kid after another would come and dangle their feet next to me, and we would talk. And I got to know the kids in my new youth group and ministered to some of the other kids from camp. Um, I started keeping a record, and I talked to 50 kids during that week. I led three of the new kids to Christ. I could have baptized them right in the swimming pool, but they were Presbyterians. God said to me, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. For when you are weak, I am strong. And that is wisdom from God that changed my life and changed my ministry. Now, I don't know what God's wisdom is for you as you're facing a trials. It's often not as obvious as it was to me that week. But I do know this, that if you seek him, he will let you know. My friend Steve Brown, who was my boss at Reformed Seminary in Orlando, used to make this statement. He said, when an unbeliever gets cancer, God gives cancer to a believer so that the world can see the difference. Now, that's Steve Brown. It's not scripture. But there is something to be said for being able to joyfully experience difficulty. Why? Because we know that God is working in the midst of that, that he will give us steadfastness, the ability to hang in there and know that he is God. Biblical wisdom is a gift, and so is biblical hope. Now, we define hope usually as wishful thinking. If you know me, you know I'm a Pittsburgh Steelers fan, and I hope the Steelers win their seventh Super Bowl this year. That is definitely wishful thinking, especially with Tom Brady in Tampa Bay with a great offense and defense. Biblical hope is not wishful thinking. Paul defines it this way in Philippians 
chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. He says, It's my eager expectation and hope that I shall not be at all ashamed, but with full courage now as always, God will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Did you hear the beginning of that verse? It's my eager expectation and hope. That's the definition of biblical hope is eager expectation. Faith and hope are very closely related. They have the same root in the Greek language. Faith is trust in God for the present, and hope is trust in God for the future. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? There was a bestseller several years ago called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. With my oldest son, Dave, I'm Poor Dad. Kathy, his wife's father, Tom, is Rich Dad. Tom is a very successful real estate guy. Um, he's made millions of dollars. About a year ago, Dave was feeling called. He'd been a youth pastor and a worship leader for 15 years in Virginia, but he believed God was calling him to preach, and he was looking to be a senior pastor. A church in Delaware contacted him. It's a young church, a great opportunity, but they had just built a building, and they were renovating the building, and they couldn't really pay him what he was making as an associate pastor in Virginia. But Dave and Kath prayed about it, and they went. They have four children, two in college, two about to go into college. So financial considerations are real. But they know that if there was ever a crunch, they could tap into that inheritance from Tom. The same thing's true of us. We have an inheritance in heaven, but it also is available to us right now. God has promised that he will, in fact, fill us to overflowing in this passage. That eager expectation and hope of God's inheritance has ennobled Christians throughout history. It's enabled them to make sacrifices of money, of convenience, even of their lives. We have a great hope that is in our faith in Christ. And finally, as Elizabeth said so eloquently, we have the promise of God's power. The Greek word is dunamis, from which we get the word dynamite. God wants to fill us explosively with his power. Not a pop gun, but dynamite. We have to tap into that power, as Elizabeth said, to be charged. Did you catch in the passage the comparison that Paul makes there? He says, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power 
toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is available to you and me. Lord, how do I love my annoying neighbor, my annoying coworker, or even my annoying family member? God's response, let my power flow through you. Let my amazing love flow through you. It's a piece of cake. The power God has given us in the third chapter. Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than anything we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. What an amazing passage of scripture and what an amazing promise. We are in a nation that is divided politically, economically, racially, lifestyle-wise. I think it's more divided than it's ever been in my lifetime. God wants to use you and me to bridge that divide. The second chapter of Ephesians talks all about breaking down walls. I think of the example of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. Antonin Scalia was here, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg was here. They were as far apart politically and judicially, I think, as you could possibly be. And yet, they were best friends. Their families vacationed together. They truly loved one another. And I believe it's because Antonin Scalia was a believer in Jesus Christ and reached out with his power to love the person who was most difficult for him to love on the Supreme Court. I read this past week that right now in the history of America is the first time that a majority of Americans are not church members. Only 47% of people in America belong to a church or a synagogue. Less than 30% attend on a given weekend. Lord, what can we do about that? Well, I think of the great missionary Frank Laubach. His motto was, each one teach one, and then each one reach one. How about if we pray that the power of God would fill us and give us an opportunity to reach out to our friends, our co-workers, our neighbors, even our family, and invite them to worship. Barna, the Christian pollster, says that two out of five unchurched people say that if someone invited them, if a friend invited them, they would go to church. Friends, that's an opportunity to build God's kingdom. And he has given us the power to do that. So what if they say no? Try someone else. 
Friends, may we come to know the wisdom, the hope, and the power that God wants to pour out upon us. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you that you are the source of every good and perfect thing. And Lord, that you have given us in Christ all that we need to live a victorious Christian life. We're thankful, Lord, that you can use sinful people like us to build your kingdom. And we pray that you would fill us now to overflowing for Christ's sake. Amen.